Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. I am here with the philosopher, James Schofield. Super looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, I came across James, as I do a number of my uh, fans, uh, people that I'm a fan of, through John Verveke. Uh, he was engaged in a fascinating discussion around dialectical holism, which I was like, huh, and then was describing the position of E.E. E. Harris, who I had not heard of, but did it with an elegance and an articulation of the kinds of concerns I've been focused on. Uh, and I was like, hey, I got to talk to that guy. Uh, I had the chance to dialogue with him a little while ago and realized, gosh, there's an enormous amount of overlap in our interests. And I'm really looking forward to gaining a better understanding of your work and worldview. Uh, James, welcome to the program. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's uh, very fun to uh, explore a lot of the overlap in our work. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, right. So, so uh, yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, what we generally do, as people know, I'm a clinician uh, and I really like people's narratives a bit. Uh, so I often open and say, hey, you know, give us the story as much detail or a brevity uh, that you want in terms of kind of what got you into this space. Let's just start there. Right. So I started uh, all of my work in anthropology. Uh, I was basically mm. interested in the nature of humanity. Uh, and uh, of course, this uh, had me confront a, a lot of different lines of reasoning and disciplines, right, from evolution to psychology and I tried to weave them all together in my own way. And uh, as a- That's a dangerous student, thing, James. <laughs> it, yes, yes. Actually, um, this is exactly what I encountered. Um, I, I think that I had a great deal of naivete going into every single degree that I did in all of my research. Um, each time I, I, I encountered a lot of resistance. And uh, the, that resistance, of course, as it does, it helped me to grow in a lot of unique ways. Uh, where in anthropology, the kinds of questions that I was asking, I didn't realize at the time, but they were essentially metaphysical. And uh, the anthropologists were, were nervous about that. And they didn't explain to me what it was that was making them nervous, but they, oh. they just didn't like the, the approach that I was taking. Uh, because I was trying to posit uh, universals, right, about, uh, about our nature. And uh -huh. anthropology is like, no, we, we have a bunch of narratives and we have a lot of empirical data and we can connect that to what uh, evolutionary uh, psychology and biology mm -hmm. say, but right. but that's you know pretty much where it stopped. So right. uh, I was dissatisfied with that, and I moved on to uh, to psychology and um, mm. tried to find a, a richer understanding. But but that quickly I realized Good luck. That was, <laughs> yeah. What, so so the concerns that you have found in psychology, uh, I've really appreciated uh, a lot of what you've had to say about that, and um, I, I I only. Uh, I mean, dabbled in comparison to the, you know, rich career that you've had. But uh, I realized rather quickly that, um, that what I was actually aiming for in my interest in psychology was phenomenology. So right. in my master's, I encountered um, uh, in activism and phenomenological mm -hmm. research. And so I was, I was lucky that um, in my in my bachelor's, I was uh, sort of subjected to Harris. And then in my master's, I just happened to find an activism. So I've been mm. studying uh, both of them and trying to weave them together for uh, well over a decade now. And right. uh, so my book and my PhD were basically a culmination of all of that work, uh, that, oh. that effort. And um, I tried to bring in, because I realized um, uh, learning from phenomenology and from uh, the, the approach to philosophy of science that Harris takes that, uh, our conception of consciousness requires that we look at um, theories that stretch across all the natural sciences, uh -huh. uh, and, and they have to be linked together very uh, as coherently as possible. So uh -huh. there's this increasing 
um, proliferation of perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. and, and as you unify them, there's this process of differentiation that occurs as well. And yep. this goes back to Hegel uh, primarily, right? I mean, totally. roughly speaking. So mm -hmm. um, this, I have a great deal of appreciation for um, that tradition uh, yep. and then how it was refined a bit with phenomenology and then mm -hmm. uh, criticized with existentialism and then um, this third or fourth iteration now with the uh, cognitive science movement and embodiment mm -hmm. uh, and, and for cognitive science. Um, and that's pretty much where I find myself now, but I, I find that I'm currently uh, grappling with a great deal of challenges that I, I think that the current um, uh, approach to consciousness in the 4E cognitive science sphere uh -huh. is facing. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and that's bringing us back to this issue of um, making explicit what our claims are with regard for the different scientific domains. Um, it, to my mind, metaphysics. Let me pause you just a little bit there in terms of just so we can locate ourselves sure, okay, sure. in terms of our history. So, people that follow the program will know. Uh, so, I'm a big fan of Hegel, uh, but my own trajectory as an American psychologist, okay, in, in retrospect, really, is to argue that the Enlightenment emerged in a particular way and found itself in American psychology, if you follow the trajectory. Uh, and I, I claim that actually there's an enlightenment gap, okay? The enlightenment gap is the failure of, this, of a synthetic philosophy to organize our understanding, metaphysical understanding, ontological understanding, epistemological, of matter and mind in relation, okay? Uh, and the proper relationship and place of scientific knowledge relative to subjective and social knowledge, um, which you can see in the modern, the postmodern critique of modernity. So the postmodern critique of modernity Modernity argues that scientific and reason and rationality afford a particular progress and, and transcendent reason. And the most postmodern critiques, certainly in like post-structural continental philosophy, is like, eh, <laughs> not exactly. Or, and, and we can get into that specific, but here's the point I wanted to make. So you talk about following Hegel and the phenomenologist and the existential critique, and obviously there's Nietzsche in there and all that. Other. And that's a beautiful and powerful line. Um, what happens in American psychology is basically you get Newton with a matter in motion ontology, okay? And then you get a physical, a scientist approach. You get a Kantian epistemology, okay? And you get a complete failure of synthesis in the Britain into American tradition, such that by the time I'm in American empirical psychology, I can look at it very clearly and say it as fundamentally stuck of an unresolved matter in motion ontology, a physicalist ontology with a Kantian epistemology and no possible way of bridging between the two with the problem of psychology, i.e. what that subject matter, basically now sitting at the epicenter of that break, okay? Uh, so, so now if we, if we just trail my position is sort of, oh, I got stuck between a Kantian epistemology and a Newtonian ontology, and then was trying to apply the methods of science to some physical behavioral world that we call mental, whatever, okay? And then you're describing your tradition coming up through the Hegelian tradition into whatever the phenomenological perspective. I think that's a nice, we can then situate ourselves and then finding synthesis, uh, each of us trying to find synthesis through that and then seeing now for there's synthesis between us. So I'd, I'd like to uh, kind of um, begin uh, another line of, of consideration on this issue of the enlightenment gap, actually. Uh, so uh, I've been 
this in my own way recently, and I'm wondering how you respond to it. So it seems to me that uh, the issue, or one way to frame the issue, the way that I've been framing it, is that um, our concern might might begin with an ontological uh, issue of, of like, what is the world? But then there's uh, another uh, related concern of how we go about knowing that. And um, the, the, the interesting thing here to me is that the, the ethical component is actually what uh, gives rise to the very notion of enlightenment, which is um, how, like what we ought to do to go about clarifying our capacities of knowing so that we can um, clarify ontology. Because I think that um, there's a, there's a, a very common fallacy that shows up perhaps more often than any other in all discussions of consciousness, philosophy of science and metaphysics, which is uh, the, the presumption of sufficient individuation. I mean, that's not like a formal fallacy. It's sort of what I just made up, but um, that's what I would call it, right? So sure. it's the assumption that we have um, uh, adequately grasped the units of our um, phenomenon of interest and so if we have that, right, there is no longer any need to talk about a trajectory of refining ourselves, what we ought to do to be able to perceive and think more adequately to then uh, characterize ontology better, uh -huh, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. So this, to, to my mind, links together um, epistemology, ontology, and right. ethics. And, it. and it, 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 it posits, uh, in my understanding, a kind of path, uh, a path that simultaneously um, refines us, <laughs> our knowledge. It is, it is a path of becoming human and simultaneously clarifying our relationship to the universe. Love it. Um, Love it. So that's, that's where I find myself now is yeah. I've sort of done the metaphysical and philosophy of science work to at least um, create a foundation for that. And now I want to work on the epistemic uh, or the, the, uh, the ethical concerns uh, for, for really talking about the uh, how we ought to uh, reconsider the organization of society to mm -hmm. um, create the conditions for thriving that would actually allow us to better clarify ontology and 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 have better knowledge and, and become you know more fully human in a sense. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And and the the fundamental kind of principle of you talk, okay, unified theory of knowledge, is that there is a massively clouded ontology, uh, mm -hmm. at least in certain components, that is crucially related to a meaning in mental health crisis and yeah. ambiguity about foundational axiological commitments. Uh, mm -hmm. And that then is a chaotic fragmented pluralism uh, that is absolutely preventing us from reaching certain kinds of potentials and even getting clear about what those potentials might be. Um, sure. And if we can sort those kinds of issues out, that mm -hmm. will afford us an opportunity to then move from a position of chaotic fragmented pluralism into a coherent naturalistic ontology that I argue can revitalize the soul and spirit and then beyond the path, which I'm hearing you lay out, you know, yeah, yeah. Of, of toward that kind of ways of being and becoming in the world. So uh, to the extent that I am familiar with all of your work up until uh, the, the present time, uh, I, I recognize um, a kind of overlap in uh, what I call a scale of forms and uh, what, what you have is uh, uh, the, the stacks of um, different scientific disciplines in our, in our universal theory of knowledge. Um, and there's, there's various issues there that um, might be 
um, points of tension. But what what interests me is, of course, how we talk about the the next step, like the the completing the loop, right? Yes. When you when you connect science back to what we talk about as the fundamental basis of nature, um, or the attempt to do that, and and what that would look like in uh, sociological terms, um, uh, medical terms, um, educational terms, totally. right? So especially concerning um, the issue of buildum. Right, right. That's a, mm -hmm. And, and uh, you may be familiar then with Zach Stein's work who argues that fundamentally uh, it, that the, he characterizes the current state of our time between worlds uh, mm -hmm. in uh, educational terms, not what schooling, but fundamental intergenerational transmission of knowledge oriented towards wisdom. He doesn't always frame it that way, but that that's a you talk frame of organizing knowledge so that we can be then oriented toward wisdom or oriented toward wisdom and looking back on our knowledge for have a complementary feedback loop um, that affords coherent intelligibility that we really afford proper relation of ontology, epistemology, and axiology logical commitments in a coherent metaphysical frame. Uh, so to me, what, what I'm hearing in your work is enormously congruent with what it is that's, on, you know, kind of what would be uh, the necessary kind of constitutive framing of our social values and the organization of our knowledge and the process by which we relate and transmit knowledge in sort of the way Zach Sign might call education. I'm only, uh, uh partially familiar with his work up until now. I've seen some of your conversations, but uh, he seems to be making great contributions uh, along these lines. Um, so an important question, an important issue to consider would be um, how we define thriving, its relationship to virtues and, uh, <laughs> uh, and what role uh, a better understanding of those things would play in uh, a possible reorganization of our society. Totally. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, uh, you know, I know you've done some thinking along those lines. It'd be, you know, I'd be happy to dive right into some of those thoughts if you have them. And uh, let's 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 call. And those are certainly at the epicenter of Utah's concerns as well. And I'd love mm -hmm. to see what our compare notes, as it were, on our relative journeys and conclusions. Right. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, I think um, a, a useful place to begin is with the uh, the, the topic of uh, ontonormativity. Yeah. So. It seems that, uh, well, um, I know that uh, um, uh, John Verveke has been um, developing this idea a fair bit, but <clears throat> my approach to it is much more pessimistic. <laughs> um, it seems to me that for the most part, ontonormativity, the way that it shows up and <clears throat> most of the examples that we have of it are uh, are deeply problematic. Like it's, it's the idea that when we um, have a conception of what the world is and we don't reflect on it, right? It becomes our ontology. And from that, then um, we are influenced by constraints in the world that we are perceiving. And okay. those constraints then uh, translate into ethical procedures. Right? Mm. So uh, we then find ourselves um, following through sensory motor loops without uh, really questioning uh, how those loops have been constituted or what the basis of them actually is. Um, so this is... Uh, this is, I think, the major problem for, it's, it's the, the main point um, uh, of, of issue for a lot of the, the problems that we find in institutions today, uh, in scientific practice and in discussions, like, like a lot of things seem to come down to this. And uh, I think- that can, the, can, can you say a little bit about what you mean by 
uh, ontonormativity uh, and break those two words up or I assume ontological and normative and normative can have a lot of different reference points. So for the audience, maybe we can specify that or if you're going sure. into that, that's fine, but yeah, that's yeah. definitely uh, useful right, so, for folks to be carrying uh, here in the conversation. So what's, what's interesting to me is that uh, people seem to carry around with them on, on the whole, like folks who aren't actually philosophically minded, uh, even more so, right? Uh, you, you walk into a space and there are assumptions that we make about the things that exist and the kinds of relationships they have and, and the kinds of constraints they bear on us. So we walk into some sort of institutional context or a, a house of a friend, you know, and um, the objects that we find ourselves, you know, uh, dealing with, they, they suddenly have this value of like mm. um, ownership and uh, certain trajectories of, mm -hmm. of evolution that, that mm -hmm. bear a, a force upon us. Like we, mm. we mustn't uh, interfere with those trajectories. And, mm. and at the same time, we have to assume that uh, those um, those forces that were they were sort of bumping up against in other uh, in spaces where other people have sort of domain over mm -hmm. that, whether an institution mm -hmm. or a private context, okay. mm -hmm. um, they're uh, they're they're just controlled by someone outside of ourselves, and then mm. we end up following suit in, into whatever. Um, huh. Interesting, their, mm -hmm. you know, okay. the, the other's mm -hmm. conception is gotcha. about what objects exist and mm -hmm. how we are to regard them. Right. Uh, so, so this is um, so what the objects are, uh, and and our conception of them. Um, that's the ontological aspect, yep. and the normative okay. is the unconscious. I think in a lot of right. cases, uh, force that uh, that we feel and we respond to in terms of how we should uh, should behave. Right. Uh, right. Should right. be in the operative term. Yep. I think an interesting uh, further. Uh, um, like complexification of this. Like you can see how the way that I've just laid this out, that mm -hmm. kind of dynamic has been part of human uh, psychology for as long as we've been alive. We, we, we walk into a space that um, uh, other humans are occupying and they have some force on that space, right? Completely, and they, and yep. They are imparting on us um, a sort of map of that space, both in terms of its ontology and how we should interact with it. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, this, to the extent that, uh, well, it, it seems to partially vindicate something along uh, Foucauldian lines, right, of like power dynamics, but, uh -huh. but I'm, I'm very critical of, of all of that. So, so you mm. know, I'll like get to that in a bit. Like, I think okay. that this is actually the, the main problem. This is the deep um, concern that we should have, because, mm. of course, those very power dynamics are not at all giving us ontology, and we should have good reason to believe that there's a better means of figuring out what that uh. ontology is. Mm -hmm. And so... And further, um, the very concept of, of having an ontonormative system of some kind, uh -huh. it, uh -huh. if we posit that it is final or complete, we have done something very uh, problematic. Right. <laughs> and, and, and probably we've taken a deeply uh, wrong turn, right? So, so we shouldn't ever, uh, if we ever find ourselves like operating in that um, kind of space, we, we should be um, questioning it. We should be like, uh, let us try to unpack this, uh, uproot it and, and question its basis. <laughs> uh huh. So let me, let me, if I see if I can relate to this in my own mm -hmm. history about what, what I'm hearing your set of insights are. So you, you're making the observation that we're embedded in these ontonormative structures and we perceive the world as existing as such that way. And you're also making the point that this is an enormously problematic process by which we would then develop some sort of general ontology or make ontological claims in a more refined way. Am I hearing you correctly that way? Yeah, I think that it's actually a way to 
kind of diagnose a lot of the problems that are affecting totally. uh, our culture or, or any yep. culture <laughs> is, is to just the extent to which these ontonormative schemas can be taken um, hook, line, and thinker, you know, just, just eaten by so, an individual and, right. and so, sort of enacted uh, totally. unquestioningly. <laughs> so, th so actually this parallels my first awakening on you talk. Hmm. Okay. Directly this kind of uh, uh, adjacent insight to essentially then rather than be inside ontonormativity structures as something that's taken for granted, I got outside them, although I got outside in a particular way. And that was through the development of the justification hypothesis at the time or in the theories. And this was the idea uh, in 1996, I was embedded in a, a, an evolutionary formulation that I was trying to then create a, a macroscopic big history structure. This is before the tree of knowledge, but um, that afforded me a way to contextualize psychology so that I could even contextualize psychotherapy. That was my journey, okay? And then I'm backing up. And then I backed up into this idea of justification systems theory, which is now its, term, its technical term. And this is the idea of what really transforms us from primates into persons, okay? Uh, and it's the idea that um, after we get from broken symbolic language into propositional network language, okay? So their antelope, into there are the antelope, okay? Which is an affirmative, positive, propositional meaning-making claim that has truth value, uh, which then takes up truth positive space, which then can be imagined to be defined in relationship to negative space. Like maybe there's not antelope over there, or and in addition, there are also other positive truth claims that could be then there are rabbits over there, okay? And then, the, then what this means is, is as these positive propositional statements emerge, you get the opportunity for challenges to open up competing positive statements or negative statements in the form of questions, okay? So you can then, then basically say, hey, there are the antelope. No, they're not, or why, what, when, what, how. These net questions, notice how easy they are, open up particular tensions of negative space in relation. And the short answer is that this creates a problem of justification. The problem of justification is essentially how do you manage the question answer dialogue, okay? Uh, the dy dynamic around the propositional networks that are legitimizing is an ought, all right? That becomes a general problem. And because of the nature of language and goes through the skin, how do you justify private relative to public claims, okay? Uh, because the nature of information in the public space relative to interest and influence relative to the private space is fundamentally different. So you now navigate the public translation of your private space into a system that's then going to be shared and have dispersal of influence. And that's going to create all sorts of different kinds of justification dynamics. And the argument is that the ego on top of the self evolves as a mental organ of justification that's creating a legitimizing interpretive narrative that's regulating the experiential self and the public persona and dancing between them in a filtration way. And it's saying that these recursive systems of propositional networks that they're coordinating us give rise to the social construction and ontological knowledge systems that are legitimizing our coordination, which then would get right to the ontonormativity, okay, the capital C cultural systems that we embed in like fissure inside of water. Okay, so like you don't really know it, you just assume that this is the way you have to live a life when you're socialized. I mean, it's how six-year-olds live. They just live, you know, this is the, obviously the only way to live in the world, right? Mm. Um, and so when I popped into this idea of justification, okay, as 
which I've been situated in both in a culture and trained as sort of like, I'm really in the stream of justification. I'm challenging my own epistemological justification. What happened to me here is then I got adjacent to processes of justification. So I stepped outside of the stream of justification and became observer to it. And my whole experience of all of us as human beings were verbal apes that were running around justifying our actions, okay? And it afforded me an opportunity to see the ontology of that from sort of the outside, okay? Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing your story about sort of like, hey, we got to wake up to the ontonormativity of embeddedness that we are in and make sure we're very aware of that dynamic. I have a lot of parallels with what I experienced when I was like, holy shit, I'm living in a stream of justification <laughs> that I wasn't aware of before that I was living through and taking for granted. But this insight afforded me the capacity to essentially get adjacent to that and see that as an object of analysis. Yep, that, that's a wonderfully rich uh, uh, sort of uh, spelling out of a lot of the uh, processes that are going on psychologically uh, behind all this and what's given rise to it. And yes, that, that fits very well in terms of your own experience. The, the next step uh, seems to bring about uh, a couple of deep concerns. So um, it seems to me that the next step is uh, what are the conditions of uh, creating these kinds of ontonormative schemas in a healthy way versus pathological, right? Um, and and uh, first and foremost, it seems that uh, it is connected to exactly what you just said. Uh, and it, it seems to come from Sartre's, uh, Sartre's idea of uh, uh, the negation or um, uh, nothingness of consciousness, right? So uh, it seems that whenever you have uh, the possibility of um, awareness of something, you have to be able to uh, negate it or stand back from it and, and say, what if not that, right? That this is one aspect of uh, becoming aware of something. And if, if we're in, if we're embedded in dynamics that don't actually permit us to do that, right, we're forced to continue enacting onto normative schemas. Uh, and, and I think that is then a pretty good uh, conception of what uh, would be the pathological condition, mm. right? And then in the, in the other hand, though, it's a little bit harder to um, spell out what would be like a good trajectory of, uh, of moving toward, uh, but it's, you know, it involves this uh, capacity to self-transcend. And so we have to ask, what are the conditions of being able to do that um, in any given institution or system we happen to be in? And it seems um, our ability to thrive. And the next step to, to my mind seems to be, um, our individual ability to thrive is uh -huh. um, not possible unless we are uh, enabling others to thrive uh -huh. because we uh -huh. thrive together, right? So uh -huh. it's, a, it's a mutual ability of um, bringing about uh, others and our own capacities to uh, uh, so develop an authentic perspective and, and so, kind of transcend whatever system we happen to be in and be able to stand, stand back from it. Yeah, uh, that's that's just a kind of first step uh, on, on this line of reasoning. Um, but uh, the, the problem that I was going to get to and, and uh -huh. what you uh, spelled out kind of uh, leads me to it all the more uh, is that 
um, our use of technology, interestingly, uh, it poses a very uh, significant ethical concern because we are not able to step back from it. We are forced to interact with it in such a way where we presume ontological categories of the, the spaces in which we're, we're operating. And, um, and we have to use it in a particular way uh, in order to achieve any end at all. So totally. this is a, uh, a, a, a difficult matter that I've only <laughs> recently come to. And, um, mm. it, and it's, it's, I mean, are, are, that, yeah. are you struggling that in the way that Heidegger kind of struggles with it in a, in a particular way, or are you coming at it from a different angle? I know certainly his conception of the ontology of being, and I'm no Heidegger expert, so you mm. help me out here if need be, but I, I certainly his, he had deep concerns about this aspect, at least as I'm hearing you articulate it. Yeah, I'm not an expert on Heidegger either. I've uh, okay. scratched enough of him, uh, of the surface of him, to uh, to to get by and do the things I've needed to do. But uh, so the uh, yeah, working out the relationship of dialectical holism and Heidegger's ontology would be a, a very long, um, mm. extensive yeah. project. Fair enough. Well. I'm happy to steer clear <laughs> Heidegger when you're just mm. talking about the problem that uh, technology mm. poses for our ontology. Uh, that, 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 you know, Heidegger pops into my head and my own surface understandings of that reality, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be something that would need to be explored uh, much further. Um, yeah, so the so anyway, you were saying this creates, you know, technology creates an ethical concern in relationship yeah. to and the ontological categories that we take then as given as a function of that. So I'm, I'm wondering how you um, would conceptualize the uh, possible like pathological conditions versus the conditions of thriving, right? And totally. how we um, create our own environments and relationships with others. Okay, well, I mean, the, the, so this is right up the whole Utah alley. I mean, Utah, it's situ, you know, my journey is situated in the psychotherapy room. Okay, so I'm under the impression, first off, as an undergrad, I'm under the impression that, hey, behavioral science is a key to epistemologically grounded knowledge. And I want epistemologically grounded knowledge. So that when I go in, I have knowledge about what's going on, and it can help somebody heal. Okay, so I'm, in other words, I'm trained in the standard, what I call methodological behavioral science view of psychology, which means, hey, the methods of science give rise to a particular set of epistemological grounding of knowledge. And now you're an expert in certain ways that folk psychology doesn't have. Okay, and then you get situated as a healer, cont contextualized and connected to a real psyche in front of you. All right. And all of that knowledge feels very distant and abstract and misplaced at multiple levels, okay? Not only that, you're immediately confronted with the normative, and I mean that in the philosophical sense, or axiological problems, okay, of what's the right thing to do, okay? Like, what, and what do I mean by health and illness generally, or mental health and mental illness in particular, okay? And the example that I use with some people just to jar them out of the complexity of this is that it's no problem at all if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've got a lot of social anxiety, okay? I try to go to parties. Uh, I immediately feel, you know, physiologically aroused and I, and I start talking to myself in negative ways and I run home and then I don't have many friends. We call that social anxiety disorder and immediate category, okay? But what if the person came to me and said, you know, um, 
I, I, I try to approach these women. Uh, I get all of a sudden get really anxious. I want to grab them and take them in my car and bring them back to my home and rape them. Okay. Um, but I get too anxious before I'm able to get to them. Can you help me overcome this anxiety and afford me the opportunity to go through with these desires? Okay. And obviously from a psychological oh my God, you know, call the cops, you know, this is like, is this, do I have to disclose this? Is this actually, there's a Tarasov rule called actually, if I really knew you're going to do that to another human being, I would then put you in jail potentially and violate all of our confidentiality, right? So the issue is what is the, you know, in terms of what's the ontonormativity of psychotherapy? What is the context in which we're actually going to construe your subjective relationship with the world in the way it is and ought to be my particular Greg world, my psychological world and society world, we have to have a framework. If it's mostly implicit and the empirical sciences just make it implicit, I need an explicit framing that's going to afford me the clarity about what I mean by thriving versus floundering in the broadest sense of the term. And I need clarity about what, why and what am I doing in relationship to that? And that was part of the entire, what I call the problem of psychotherapy, which is the first unbelievably tangled mass of axiological normative commitments, epistemological grounding that is actually misconstrued, the absence of a metaphysical clarity and ontological specificity of what I'm talking about, okay? And it was a cluster. And I ended up dropping into the science of psychology and then doing that thing and then coming back and then fundamentally trying to build what I call sort of a, a, a basically a moral ethical transcendent structure Okay, that would guide me in relationship to and ultimately generate what's called my ultimate justification, which is essentially uh, the macroscopic ontonormative value structures that guide me. My ultimate justification be that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. Okay, and these became essentially meta values that I could then utilize and operate from in a way that was both appropriate to certain situations and also transcended them at least as far back as I could pull the lens and see. Right. Uh, so, uh, from, so yeah, that, that seems pretty straightforward in terms of um, uh, fitting with uh, uh, the, the goals of current psychology, but perhaps bringing together uh, or being informed by uh, a number of uh, sub-disciplines of psychology. So, so how would that work for you? How would you draw from um, the other psychological disciplines to like inform your conception of um, well-being, for instance, in a way that would be uh, more than like a uh, kind of almost cliche uh, conception that would uh, show up for standard uh, counselors today? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean. You know, there's a this is a very long answer to this problem potentially because my life's sort of life's work in relation. Uh, the short answer is that you can't do it in the current organization. And what I mean by that is is that the current organization is a chaotic, fragmented school of thought organization, meaning the paradigms are really mid-level, not true paradigms, but they're mid-level schools of thought that are organized in terms of you know a set of assumptions and understandings, okay, and value commitments that compete with each other dramatically, okay? Uh, and indeed, for example, inside a classic psychoanalytic tradition into a psychodynamic tradition, the value is insight. Uh, that is sort of a, a statement about uh, that would be where id was, let ego be, okay? Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the picture of humanity is to just become aware of your animalistic, dark, sexual aggressive urges. It's a tragic condition. You're mm -hmm. inevitably neurotic. And the best that you can do is gain awareness of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the behavioral position is arguably a, a, at a sort of a thematic level, a sort of a situation comic mm -hmm. view has been argued. Stan Messer is a guy that argued this. And basically the problem from a behavioral view is tweaking the right engineering of reinforcements in a particular way. It's sort of a comic problem that we face in the sense that we don't really simply understand what reinforcements are about. We don't know how to gain control of them. If we actually mm -hmm. saw the irony of our various, you know, poor schedules of reinforcement, we could tweak them and then we would be adaptively living. And there's no real existential crisis other than simply the process of adaptive living. Okay. So that, that, that macroscopic thematic value vision of what the human condition is, situation comedy, essentially, arguably, versus a tragic neurotic structure. Well, these are two schools of thought, at least from Stan Messer's view. There's like, they're fun. They're ontonormative commitments, you know, and they're funda fundamental assumptions about both what is good and what is the case for the human condition are radically different. Okay, um, the bottom line is is that counseling itself, and I use that word kind of like okay, like generic counseling is just really a folk eclectic vision, okay, of helping people in a common sense sort of way which is almost certainly going to be embedded in any larger conventional ontonormative structure. And it's not going to have any idea whether it's going to be repeating the evils of that large scale structure or not. It's really just going to be dependent upon that convention. And it's going to have very little power to step outside that ontonormative structure and reflect on it with, criti with criticism. So I've come to the um, impression, this is, this is a terrible simplification, but uh, it seems that therapy is uh, like, friendship in the, the richest sense of the word uh, with uh, basically friendship training wheels. So uh, it's helping someone to sort of befriend and reflect on the, themselves and also to, to, to connect to other people. And uh, it, it seems to me that um, it has a, a really important role in, in education as well and in general philosophical development. Um, it's, it's like the first step in um, beginning to uh, be able to look at your actual um, unconscious associations and question them uh, for if there are inhibitions or blocks or pains or traumas that are getting in the way of that process, right? But, but at the same time, uh, therapy seems to be something that's, that's ongoing for everyone, right? We just do it in different ways. And like, it seems that uh, like a really healthy, series of relationships act exactly in that way to, to sort of help us become the best version of ourselves. And this is where uh, the, the, the idea of thriving becomes uh, essential. Um, so our, our goal then is to um, encounter uh, ourselves, but, but in an ongoing way. And in doing that, though, it's a continuous effort to actually be able to reveal ourselves to others, right? And, and this is, I think, where um, uh, your Dialogos efforts and, and all of John's uh, Dialogos efforts really um, uh, can help that quite a bit, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah so there's innumerable methods for doing this. Uh, one of the problems that I've seen in some of the work that's been done lately is uh, the kind of presumption, I guess it's actually not a recent problem at all, but it's the presumption that uh, under some conditions, we, we 
like have ourselves adequately or we've we've like encountered our own unconscious um uh, I'm, uh, I'm wondering if you've like uh, so yeah what are your views on say surrealism and psychedelics and meditation <laughs> um and, and what what roles can these play in in this process oh absolutely um yeah, so a huge amount to say there. And again, I, I'm really, uh, I'm happy to reflect on this. I also want to make sure you, you know, if there are particular keys and insights that you want to share, we, we will circle into them. I, I thought what you said about psychotherapy is really central, okay, mm-hmm. at, at the level of, at the most general statement, there's a thing called common factors, okay? In fact, I'm currently the president of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. And this is a process by which they, these uh, over the last 30 years or so, people have asked systematic questions about what's the proper relationship between these schools of thought. Um, and one of the most general conclusions is the conclusions that you just afford. And that is the common factors view of the psychotherapeutic process is found in the processes of relating that are healing that would then very much be aligned with the concept of friendly uh, friendship broadly construed, okay? Uh, and so that's a, just a point I wanna make. I actually gave up my license to practice for a, whole, for a number of different reasons, but one of them was that I'm very frustrated with us continually professionalizing and cloistering aspects of our understanding of relationship behind the doors of the confidential professional counseling relation when we need to be generalizing what we know about healthy relationships into the world, into our dialogos around academic issues, into our relationships with our family, into the schools, not professionalizing it and putting right, it under right. a, a confidential. So there's a, there's a danger, there's a real danger of the system. We're gonna give you a professional friend and we're gonna pay that friend to be a friend. Yeah, so right? that seems it's deeply unethical a, to me. It's actually. a very it's problematic a structure. Come to recently. <laughs> it's, yeah, no, there's a, there's a real, so there's a, we have to very, be very clear about what the role of a psychological doctor is mm-hmm. that's above and beyond friend. Okay. And we're not because of the confusion of it in relation. Okay. Uh, now, when we get into sort of what kinds of, you know, issues afford us the capacity to thrive. Okay. And, and then how do we actually think about those Again, I, there's an enormous amount that might fall into first psychotherapy and then psychology and then knowledge oriented towards wisdom says um, about those structures that I get in. But I really want to come back and say what you say about friendship, my own exploration of this kind of issue, and my own mission to cultivate what I call relational value, the felt sense of being known and valued in community and in connection as one of the fundamental current currencies that we need to generate um, to feel our human natures flourish. So uh, similar to um, certain notions of government, right? The best government's the one that governs least or, or another way to put it is the government that uh, enables the, the people to function in such a way that they no longer need the government, right? Exactly. And similar with, um, I think, psychotherapy and I think education. This is some interesting connections between uh, therapy and uh, education as well. And, and it, the common basis, I think, is philosophy. So uh, it, it has- I'll drink me, to that. <laughs> it, it strikes me that um, the, uh, the process of undertaking uh, therapy, uh, if you are to do it um, sort of to its ideal intention, I think, um, and of course, there's many different intentions, but I mean, uh, you know, 
correct me or, or criticize this idea if you'd like. Um, it seems that uh, it, there's necessarily an educational component in it because um, if you are to help somebody navigate their way um, through uh, traumas or, or develop various ways of responding to their own unconscious emotional reactions to things, right? Um, what you're doing is in a sense, another way to put it is that it's very much like um, uh, mindfulness training wheels. Like uh, it, the, the therapist acts as like um, a, a, a function that completes the feedback loop that eventually the client can internalize and, okay. and have in their own um, psyche, in their own being, um, and then instantiate in all of their relationships potentially, Absolutely. right? And of yep. course, that's an ideal, right? And it's, sure. it's different than how it's manifested. But um, so the educational aspect is the um, the imparting of a, mo a model. And uh, this, I think, uh, of course, it's being addressed to some degree, but the, the ethical issue here is the fact that um, there's a specific model being imparted by a therapist who, you know, they endorse this model of the mind. And, and this is where philosophy of mind comes in, because a lot of the presumptions about the structure of the mind that's being imparted to the, uh, to the client, um, this concerns uh, a philosophical theory of, of what sure. mind is, right? And um, so in this very issue, the client is obliged to be able to philosophically navigate and question and stand back from the model that they're being given. Um, and, and it seems to me that the, the idea of a thriving human is going to integrate the capacity to critically reflect, which is essentially philosophy, to do that with others so that they integrate new perspectives of the models that they're working with so that they can update it more sufficiently and in, in, bring in uh, as many different kinds of perspectives as possible, right? Um, and so there's there's this amalgam of um, therapy, mindfulness, and uh, in order to uh, sort of address and face one's unconscious, um, and then um, the the educational and philosophical aspect as well. And it seems to me though that all of this, the way that I'm putting it, is really just um, clarifying one single. Uh, feedback loop. And it's just in terms of, again, the, the conception of friendship, which, which allows us to encounter ourselves. And mm. um, all of this further, um, some, one further kind of contention or conclusion that I'd make here is just that uh -huh. uh, there's, there's so much wrong with uh, philosophical approaches that um, complexify and confuse wow. uh, various people's conceptions of what their unconscious is, how it operates, and, and, and sort of magnifies it and um, uh, romanticizes it to a very, to dangerous ends, right? It, so those concerns, right, are getting in the way <laughs> of people realizing that the goal is to cultivate friendship that allows them to critically reflect on themselves and transcend themselves, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and there's a lot of things that can be said about uh, the role of archetypes and how they um, facilitate this romanticization and uh, right. uh, in this process, but um, but yeah, I'll sort of let you yeah. riff off that if you'd like. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that that's, th uh, there's a lot of deep truth to that. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, uh, that, okay, so uh, if you look at the, so the, there's a, the common factors you coupled with the general uh, sort of finding of psychotherapy, all these things to get very similar outcomes. And then you look at what kind of outcomes you get. And essentially for the, Basic, the big chunk of the outcome that we get, James, is what you get a reasonably well-functioning individual that's having hard times, 
that goes in and gets listened to, understood, and validated, connected, and then activates their capacity to reflect in new ways on what they're doing, and then leave and be like, oh, I was both loved and given new perspectives for reflecting. Okay. And, and that's, that is a, that's the, that's a huge chunk of what we're good at is actually the argument. And I think the empirical argument based on the research is we, if you intuitively kind of know how to do that, you get that kind of outcome. So okay? what's different between that and like having a secure attachment style exactly? Well, I mean, a secure attachment style in relationship is, is then a really a dance. Uh, you can, people will carry it around, but then they'll have different internal walking models. So some people think, well, are you secure or insecurely attached? It's really, well, who are you securely attached to? Because it will differ depending on the relational context that you're in, unless you're genuinely wounded and then essentially you're always carrying people. Certainly some people will essentially carry always an insecure attachment, okay? But many people will be largely insecure, but secure one or two with other people potentially. Um, the, the issue from a unified theory is there's a thing called the influence matrix. The influence matrix maps the human relationship system, uh, which is actually a fusion of the attachment system and our interpersonal exchange system, which is a competitive cooperative system. Humans fuse this together and they carry around a set of internal working models and they try to position themselves in high social influence and high relational value. They try to carry this idea about what is it like to have social influence and really be known and valued. There's archetypes. And then what is it like to have no social influence and be devalued, rejected, and indignantly treated? And they're threatened in relation. The extent to which they sense in this relational context that they're threatened to low relational value and social influence is the extent to which they will feel insecure, okay? And then that will drive them in particular kinds of ways. It will either drive them to be hyper-dependent Okay, anxious and worried. Oh my God, oh my God, don't leave me. I'm vulnerable, take care of me. Or it will drive them to be counter-dependent and distancing and dismissive. Or at the worst case, it will count that cause them to be disorganized and erratic in relationship to the way they'll behave. And there's a thing called borderline personality disorder that basically is the broken identity, extreme emotional reaction system that's flashing between, I love you, take care of me. Oh my God, you're controlling me, now I hate you. And the identity structure is completely fragmented and bouncing all around as it tries to gain friendship, but its attachment structure is so disorganized uh, that it then causes other people to get all erratic. Uh, they become emotional vampires and then you have a repeated cycle of dysfunctional relating uh, identity emotional processes. Um, and I'll say, since I walked into that, that's really where the psychological doctoring comes in. Okay, so, so if we do know that master clinicians um, and although I don't consider myself an A-plus master clinician, I consider myself a master class. Um, master clinicians will have capacities to actually enter into systems that are of fundamentally personality disordered layers, okay? Which normal friendship, they, they eat up normal friendships, okay? Right, right. You can't just befriend somebody. You actually have to have talents as a psychological doctor to enter into and be able to see and know the participatory dance of a broken attachment system. Okay, and then mirror that with a healing way over time and then afford a new kind of friendship to emerge because you're skilled and know what you're doing. Whereas if somebody that lacked skill and had weekend training, they would just get eaten up by it. So the real expertise of a psychological doctor, there, there's basically step one is to be a good friend. And that's like 80% of it. <laughs> and then you know, how do you listen to, and then step two for advanced people is like, okay, there's actually a real talent in the clinic room 
to deal with very tricky issues that most people would find confusing and irritating and have transference sure, to. Sure. If you know what you're doing, you can work your way through and then afford healing in that kind of chaos. Yep. That, that brings me to the next issue that I wanted to talk about, actually. So it, um, in some cases, it seems that um, individuals need to be perturbed, um, maybe even traumatically so. Uh, and this might be the case uh, for the rampant narcissism that's overcome our culture. Uh, it, it seems like some sort of um, significant pushback uh, of a a sort of perturbation, or um, you might call it even almost a, a traumatic perturbation that would be required to sort of shake um, that uh, mindset uh, sufficiently to transcend itself and then heal and move forward in some way. So, um, <clears throat> of course, being sensitive to the specific dynamics, right, as you say, um, really master clinicians are going to be able to recognize certain dynamics and they're they're going to be able to um, respond to them in appropriate ways. It, it seems to me that that response is uh, very much, <clears throat> uh, uh, it's, it's resistance. It, it's pushing back. It's reflecting in a, in a pretty profound, and, and, and this is where I say kind of traumatic way, where uh, it, it, uh, it's very jarring um, in a similar way that having a very profound experience from um, many, many hours of meditation, uh, sure. you know, shatters your, your sense of self through, uh, or, or psychedelics shatters your sense of self through um, yep. uh, ego uh, dissolve, right? Um, something like that seems to be required for um, sort of narcissistic uh, cultural dynamics that we're seeing. Um, but uh, but how we might go about that, uh, I'm not really sure. It, it, this is just my, um, at this point, kind of uh, intuition based on the things that I've come across. So, sure. so yeah. What, uh, so what I mean, there's a, <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot to be said in relationship to that. So um, first off, yes, uh, good therapy. I mean, first off, I'll, I'll say this by actually master's uh, supervisors were into post-traumatic growth. Okay, uh, and and certainly they argue uh, that that we can certainly track individuals. There's definitely a sub pattern of individuals that do get traumatized by certain things and then afford themselves to reconsolidate at higher order, closer to thriving, better levels of sophistication. There is a phenomenon that's documentable in a general way of called post traumatic growth, a dark night of the soul from a more sort of psychodynamic kind of perspective. And I think many people, certainly myself. Uh, you know, you can wonder if it's cognitive dissonance. Well, I'm glad I went through that because I really learned, but actually, if you really wish that, I wish I never went through that. Um, if you went through the other path. Um, but I think there's genuine truth to this idea, like I said, so in general. Um, when you get into this therapeutic system, okay, uh, that there, whether or not you um, would want to use a particular word like traumatize the system, that would start to press, okay? But absolutely the case that you wanna be a skilled clinician to know how to challenge a system, okay? Uh, there's an entire line called by a guy by the name of Davin Liu in psychodynamic, intensive short-term psychodynamic, which is essentially an assault, uh, a direct line assault on a person's defenses, okay? Very quickly, like somebody's, oh, I'm really worried about this. Oh, you really like to take up a lot of space, use your dependency needs to gain attention, act as though you're a victim. So you redirect attention from other things and then say as though you're the victim, you're actually really manipulating the system in order to get attention. And you flip that around. You notice that you do that in order to feel secure because deep down inside, you actually feel empty and vulnerable. And this is just a misdirection that you're used to doing in order to reinforce yourself. 
Okay. So, so what? <laughs> okay. Like, and you know, and the, you know, that's a very, and I'm, you know, like, so the frontal assault on a defensive structure that looks at a psychic system through the shadow and then brings egoic awareness into the room about that shadow to jolt the system into a potential reorganization. And I think the findings on that, and I don't know, like empirically verifiable, I haven't looked too deeply. My understanding is that you get a kind of a bimodal outcome, meaning that in those kinds of unbelievably intense systems, the people that actually do have the constitution and find enough value in the relationship to hold through um, can then actually reconstitute in a particular way and do so and find that to be very valuable. That at the same time, a number of individuals with that kind of onslaught just find the whole particular process to be massively aversive. Uh, they, they get sort of re-traumatized. They don't have the ego strength to organize this except as an injury and a conf layer of confusion upon layer of confusion. I don't practice intensive short-term psychodynamic, but I am certainly very keen on, on helping my doctoral students who often will come into the, er the early phases of a relationship of therapy with too much of the tactful friend view okay of therapy and too much like oh i you know the person really feels like shit and it's like oh but you're really smart in this way and you're really and it's like no tell them that there's probably good reason that they feel like shit okay let them go into that and then own that part and press them in a particular way and then find the shadow and find the defense and engage in it there don't try to tactfully prevent them from seeing what it is that they're actually afraid of because you actually just layer support on top of the system and you fail to get to the structure. And often to get to the structure, you have to be poking at it in a particular way. And the skill is to poke at it in a way that doesn't activate the psychological immune descent system that then pushes away from you, but instead affords the ego a perspective on it, a novel perspective on a core organization. And if you can afford a challenging novel perspective on a core organization that's interested and open, well, then you can get good shifts. Right. Uh, so yeah, all of that seems very much consistent with um, the general intention of uh, the love of friendship <laughs> uh, through and for wisdom, right? Uh, it, that's that's what it's all kind of being guided toward, right? And that seems to be a pretty good um, kind of core line uh, on which to, or by which to, to judge um, uh, other possible avenues of growth. <clears throat> the only thing I would say about the friendship dynamic, okay, and this is certainly we talk about in therapy quite a bit, okay, is it, I totally agree that there, there are the relational aspects of the sort of the aspirational elements of certain philosophical conceptions of friendship totally fit. Um, when people hear the word friend, Okay, uh, and the thing in the therapy room that you have to be aware of is the professional interest organizations of the structure make it a, an imbalanced friendship with a one-way kind of street kind of dynamic, uh, which is radically different than the norm. So sure, me sure. as therapist, of course, uh, has a particular set of structures and obligations and orientations toward interests, i.e. the interests of the client relative to my professional guild and society, but focus there becomes the central emphasis and to the extent that a friendship evolves in a normal sense of the world that's got a reciprocal reciprocal dynamic right, um, sure. uh, but but there's a great line if the, what my favorite uh psychotherapy movie of all time is called ordinary people 
love that movie. I recommend it highly. Judd Hirsch is a therapist. Timothy Hutton, Mary Tyler Moore, Donald Sutherland. It's a great film from 1980. Okay. And it's about a, a brother is a trauma, family trauma, and a younger brother trying to cope with this. And the therapist is Judd Hirsch, guy from Taxi. Um, he's great. And they, they have this very intense relationship, okay? And he has this massive climactic crisis, you know, in, in a very realistic way, but appropriate. And he's looking to rely on the therapist. He's like, and he's like, are you there? And he's like, you know, I got your back, basically. I'm your friend. Count on it, okay? Uh, and I thought it was a very, it, it, it was well done and appropriate. Now, I know some people would watch that and be like, oh, my God, the therapist said they were your friend. OK, but in the context of the, the setup, it's an exact right word as far as I'm concerned. And it fundamentally captures the essence uh, of the structure of their relationship and its healing core. So um, I, I have to move my car. <laughs> I'm, I'm terribly sorry if you can possibly just okay you know, we'll just pause it yeah no gap. problem yeah, sure. hey man no problem friend <laughs> yeah so you know to me when you speak of friendship that scene comes to mind where uh, i think that there, there's a particular way in which that therapeutic relationship unfolds that at the core embodies that essence and shows its healing function so so this brings us to the meaning crisis, it seems, uh, basically um, how to facilitate the, this very process for uh, a collective, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, that, that seems to my mind to, uh, so the approaching the meaning crisis, the first thing to, to bear in mind uh, is just the uh, interdependence of the, the educational and the therapeutic process. Yes. Um, that seems to be uh, definitive of it. Um, uh, so it, it, it seems like a useful way forward is just to see that uh, when either one of those two processes are done correctly or adequately to achieve thriving for an individual, um, they, they, they involve the other in a particular way. And they're actually mutually constraining as well. So that seems to move us in the direction of uh, this sort of parameters that would uh, characterize respective institutions um, or, or sort of govern uh, how, how we should imagine institutions um, evolving and, and developing over time. Yeah. Yes. Can you say more about that in terms of like, you know, what you envision and how, how you know, yeah, so how that might be realized or, or ways in which we right right this is this is quite a, uh, a new issue for me. Um, this this mm. seems to be pretty much where uh, all of the conversations have kind of left us. This is like the shore that we've we've washed upon um, is, is basically just facing um, this very matter. So uh, I mean there's, there's so many challenges with regard for like the current, uh, educational systems, right? Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> and it does seem that narcissism has, has largely plagued a great majority of them th throughout, uh, from from education to um, uh, psychological training. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's something that would need to be addressed. And so I'm I'm wondering how you imagine like scaling up the process that you just talked about uh, right. to um, uh, applying it to, to, a, to a cultural level because um, I haven't heard that so much addressed in any of the other uh, discussions right yeah no well certainly uh, I mean there, there are a couple of things here so within the context of you talk 
you know, my my first and foremost point is that I'm making an analytic argument, actually, uh, and that is this issue of at least the strain of sociocultural anti-normativity I found myself in, if you want to use that term, of American psychology, okay, was situated in a set of confusions that I now understand. Uh, mm -hmm. And I call that the enlightenment gap. And it gives rise to the problem of psychology and psychotherapy, okay? Meaning there's no coherent intelligibility about psychology's subject matter and its proper relationship to psychotherapy. And instead, what we have is a cluster uh, of schools of thought, empirical findings, and a commitment to a behavioral methodology, behavioral science methodology, a commitment to a sort of a generic folk understanding of human beings. And then that creates a particular structure. Now, Utah comes along and it basically diagnoses the enlightenment gap problem of psychotherapy, psychology issues, shows how people tried to solve them, why they were aspectualizing different aspects, you know, but couldn't coordinate, coordinate gives rise to a new descriptive metaphysical system that clarifies the ontological referent and then ties the school of thought meta theories and major empirical findings together into a coherent intelligibility so that we can resolve the problem of psychology, frame then the problem of psychotherapy and actually bridge and dissipate the enlightenment gap. Okay, so that's, that's the, there's an analytic structure there that's, that's really, you know, uh, argumentative, evidence-based, uh, a whole set of uh, elements. So now that's then, now the issue is, well, what does that mean? What would it mean pragmatically? And what does it mean about, I often then talk about the back half of the 21st century. Okay, so what are the fundamental implications of that knowledge organization structure for say education, friendship, therapy, our institutions, what it is that we should do? Now, there's a whole host of possible angles, but I'll now come back and then I'll shut up and see what you want to take on that. Right. Well, so that, wanna... Yeah, that seems to be uh, like primarily in the context of psychology or the different psychological subdisciplines, right? Um, uh, one thing that I've come to um, is the importance of interdisciplinarity. It seems to me that sure. it's basically a scaled up function of uh, empathy. Uh, so okay. the, the, the process of being able to um, see the way a situation is articulated or conceptualized through another lens, right? Um, it, it seems that what we have to deal with is this uh, ongoing convergence of uh, different perspectives. And that's, of course, um, so following a, a Bohmian uh, ontology, uh, there is no foundation. So we're not going to achieve a sort of ground level at any point. So, so we shouldn't hold out for that. Uh, and it, it seems that philosophy's main one of its main roles is to coordinate a kind of um, translation across disciplines. Yep. Uh, and it's because it, you, you need to be able to stand back and try to posit always uh, a wider whole. Um, and this is um, a methodological move that uh, Harris, um, he seemed to approach it and, and develop it, I think, in a, um, a somewhat novel way. I mean, mm. like pragmatism had done this to some degree. Kuhn mm. had done it with his conception of paradigms. Uh, mm. A lot of people had, but starting in 1965, Harris had uh, a, a way of addressing this matter. And so, um, it, and for him, it starts with the very idea of um, the synthetic a priori. So he's, he's talking about um, the, the very uh, conditions for categories at all. Uh, and, and 
so rather than trying to posit what the categories are, he's, yep. he's talking about the process by which categories are generated. Sure. And, and that allows for, I think, um, uh, for, for him and for anyone following that line of reasoning, a sort of a vantage point that, that yep. can coordinate and systematize uh, the, the categories that different um, folks, uh, different disciplines, different individuals yep. have. And it seems to me that it's just a very, um, it seems very powerful because it's so, uh, well, homologous from yes. uh, an individual standpoint of, of how you coordinate empathically across um, perspectives of, of uh -huh. individual uh -huh. people on a lay level yep. to the exactly what's happening um, on transdisciplinary coordinations and, and interdisciplinary projects. Uh -huh. uh, and, and it seems that this is just uh, the very process by which we, uh, like an individual discipline can thrive or an individual person can thrive. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So this leads us to uh, a better conception of what thriving is. And it, it might be part of the solution to, to shake up uh, totally. people's minds. And because um, a, a great deal of the, the challenge that we seem to be facing is that we are, uh, whether in a cultural or individual mm -hmm. standpoint or in terms of a discipline, we get wedded to the categories that we're dealing with. Totally. Um, this is something that um, it, it, it seems to me, it, it has been uh, sort of emphasized uh, just quite naturally through my teaching uh, of, of students because it's the, it's the main thing that is taken by assumption into the main point of um, uh, philosophical uh, sort of like uh, confrontation. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and again, it's the same kind of move that ends up being required totally. for uh, pathological interruptions, right? Yeah, it's, it it's questioning categorical structures. Yes. So here's the way I relate to that. Uh, so if I draw a triangle here uh, between the problem of psychology, the problem of psychotherapy, and this enlightenment gap, and then I fill you talk in it, and this becomes a meta-psychology, okay? You talk as a, I frame you talk as a meta-psychology. Meta-psychology then is the space between psychology and its various facets, okay? And philosophy, okay? So I back into philosophy. Um, like I was taught essentially through the science process that I essentially equated philosophy with epistemology, really, you know? And then loosely ontology, but I didn't know shit about ontology. And I basically then was framing, well, how do you justify what you know? And, what's a, and especially a scientific epistemo, uh, philosophy angle basically reduces to epistemological justification and grounds it in some sort of intersubjective, reliable, objective position that then can make particular kinds of truth claims. Okay, that's what I was taught. I was never taught metaphysics. I mean, fucking psychology. I mean, you talked about this in anthropology. It's like metaphysics. I actually thought metaphysics was shit people didn't know anything about. <laughs> you know, like, so then I then, you know, built the system and then I keep backing up and then backing up. And then I realized, oh my God, actually the system that I built, this tree of knowledge system is actually a natural science descriptive metaphysics that affords me clarity about the ontology of the mental. Okay. And that, and that was, and so, oh, actually I'm doing natural science metaphysics. That's essentially what I, and that's missing, which is like, oh, metaphysics, i.e. the concepts and categories that are operative and their interrelations that affords an ontological map of big history on the time by complexification dimension. That's essentially what Tree of Knowledge did. And then it afforded me a place to then back up. So then I, what I'm saying is essentially that I back up meta psychology into philosophy. 
and then I'm hanging out with the philosophy territory. And then the issue is, is like, well, what are the other synthetic philosophers that they are operating in this space? And now how we might, so if there's a dialectical holism that emphasizes the way in which individuals enter into metaphysics and generate concepts and categories that are sophisticated, then that should interact with this system and complement it. And we should afford a, a, an opportunity to see those kinds of interrelations and, and afford an even bigger dialectical holistic picture. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the main, um, I think, contribution of dialectical holism, and I'm, I'm basically just uh, carrying it forward. And <laughs> at the moment, kind of the one person carrying that flag. Uh, I, I will, I will. <laughs> well, there's one person carrying this. you talk, so we'll join together and have two people <laughs> in relation. Sure. The, Go ahead. The, I guess the idea is, um, I think that the process of uh, working toward clarifying ontology is connected to pretty much the, the best things that we can say about ontology itself. So the, the very process of uh, ontology becoming us, becoming aware of ontology, um, it is one continuous loop, but um, it's not closed. And that's the, the significant difference <laughs> to a lot of other systems that so, exist. And so it's it's a common process, uh, but the common process isn't um, uh, completely uh, spelled out. And that's the mistake that a lot of metaphysical systems have made in the past. Um, it, either they don't recognize that they need to be approximating a loop in order to be at least uh, consistent or aiming toward completion, um, yep. or uh, they don't realize that they've already established a completely closed loop. And, mm -hmm. and in doing so, they, they actually, uh, they're doing bad philosophy, basically, right. and that they have essentially circular arguments. And this is, again, the, the concern of um, assuming, for example, that we have uh, particular uh, structures for the bits of information. Uh, and, and this has been my concern with uh, integrated information theory. Mm -hmm, it it mm -hmm. presumes that we, we have what it is uh, that are the units of, of mm -hmm. mind, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, then it, and then it carries out various analyses of it and says, mm -hmm. this is how we can use this. And it, it's, it's quite, you know, any time that that kind of work is done, it usually uh, produces very interesting uh, predictive schemas, which is mm -hmm. great, but that's uh, potentially a conflation of epistemology and ontology. Totally. Uh, it, positing ontology proper, um, it seems to me, from a dialectical polis conception, is it's positing uh, certain constraints that nature uh, has, and that's the that's the ontology of it. But those constraints give us a path. Of, of ongoing work that we need mm -hmm. to do in terms of how we relate to each nice. other to totally. do better science <laughs> and yep. to, to, to basically just live as better humans. Love it. Uh, yeah, so, no, I, certainly my, yeah, 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 my system is very consistent with that. I would certainly afford mm -hmm. uh, lots of overlap. I, I sort of frame it as a, you know, 21st century framing and the whole point of that contextualized timing is precisely I think related to the openness, uh, the looping functions, uh, the recognition that although it's a definitely sort of constituted as a theory of everything in a certain kind of way, it's it's not a foundationalist and complete universalist theory of everything. It's a particular way to construe uh, knowledge in a holistic synthetic way, but at the same time is open uh, and, and recognizes limitations in, in particular um, potentialities uh, in relationship to other systems, in relationship to future growth, et cetera. So I've 
I've never uh, been completely clear. I'm not sure if you've talked about this in another video, but um, your your ontology of information. I was, I was hoping we could uh, touch yeah, on that a little sure. bit, like how um, what what is this information? And I, I've heard you uh, talk about it in relation to narrative, and um, uh, that was that was quite interesting to me. But but I, I didn't quite figure out exactly what the relationship was. Like you, you posit non-reductive levels it seems um mm -hmm. in some sense but uh, yeah. but i'm not exactly sure how those uh, levels relate to each other and how they relate to the ground uh, or, or information ground or, or whatever so, so roughly like what what is going on there okay <laughs> well yeah allow pretty strong <laughs> connection i guess between Sweet. our two positions yeah um, okay, so information is a really complicated construct. It's foundational. Uh, I like to think sort of my ontological assertion of sort of the ground of being, as I like to call it, the energy information implicate order. Okay, sort of this is my, this is my pointing to the ground of being underneath the material dimension of complexification. Mm. Okay, so I consider what Newton is describing uh, in matter in motion uh, realities on three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, resulting in force equals mass times acceleration. That if I drop the cup, uh, I can articulate a behavior change pattern uh, through mechanics. Okay. Uh, underneath that is a quantum field theory. Okay. Uh, on the one hand, if we drop down into the small whereby, we can then talk about the nature of what I would, how I would characterize quantum fields. Okay, um, and I know they have some interest in Bohm, and I'm not a Bohmian expert, uh, mm -hmm. but I'm interested in this pilot wave theory and another other aspects of this. And I certainly use implicate order as a function of Bohm, although I'm not certain how he always utilizes that term. And I sometimes get um, his implicate or explicate order relation is, if, you know, I'd be definitely interested in getting edified in relationship to that nuance. But certainly what I basically would say is that, hey, we had a matter in motion three dimension field relation across time as a, you know, in a Newtonian way. And then quantum field theory <clears throat> and the Big Bang cosmology, Big Bang beginning cosmology, uh, afford us a way to define uh, a system of energy information beneath it. Okay, and I'm gonna use the term energy as sort of uh, the basic substance frame. And that's a, we can talk about what that is. And a lot of people in physics will say, actually, well, energy is a referent in relationship to other, like the term quantity, and you've tried to reduce everything to quantity, but other physicists will certainly make the argument that you can basically have and sort of essentially energized space condensed into some essence, and that becomes a fundamental ontological uh, referent. So for me, uh, and then the differentiation of energy, um, the difference within that is a way to think about then essentially energy data. Okay, so like if you consist of, think about it as a continuum of of bosons or photon, electromagnetic boson, um, each one of those digit differentiations can be thought of as a data point and the physics of information essentially describes it that way. So one way to define information is to think about it just as the infinite of data and the interrelation on an energy field. That's one possible reference for the term. And if you, like John Wheeler's work on, you know, moving from it to bit, he, he basically sort of wanted to model uh, the universe as an unfolding computational system whereby each reference point uh, is a data point, okay? Uh, that's one way to conceptualize sort of information. So a set of energy set of data, we can model it computationally. 
then what then what I would argue is, okay, so that's one difference. Uh, there's another issue that relates to information theory that comes off of Claude Shannon, okay? Uh, and the work of, you know, uh, Turing and other individuals in relationship to communication networks. Uh, and fundamentally, information theory has a lot to do with the nature of disorder, the nature of messages, the nature of the reduction of uncertainty. So the mathematical, mathematization of levels of uncertainty and the process by which you can analyze data to reduce uncertainty, uh, to ascertain predictive power, ascertain meaning of messages, things along those lines. Um, so information theory pertains to the idea by which you extract data to yield uh, the reduction of uncertainty. So that's another, so one meaning of information is data itself. Another meaning of information potentially is, is data that reduces uncertainty. Uh, another meaning of information has to do with really the processing of information. So the pro information can be processed in relationship to data is then translated and then recursively computationally manipulated and then uh, creating an output. So information processing or the process by which there's a translation or transduction in like in the case of the nervous system that then yields a particular computational algorithmic recursive structure, which can then manipulate and then yield particular um, possible outputs. Um, and then another definition is then this, potentially the structure of that computational recursion yields a semantic structure whereby say a subject has meaning of the particular forms of information that is then being generated. So then you have a semantic, schematics, and tactical structure, okay, which is then interpreting uh, and modeling, representing, et cetera, recursively that information. Um, so information for me has a multiplicity of different meanings in terms of sort of the physics of information meaning, the information theory meaning, the information processing meaning, uh, the semantic, semiotic structure of meaning uh, in that regard. And so, and, and so I'd mean be clear about then the referent of information and I'll be using it sort of with generally one or a multiplicity of those meanings in mind. Mm -hmm. So uh, so to my mind, um, or dialectical holism in general, um, all of those examples are uh, really powerful ways of uh, making predictions in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the context though, uh, because of the way various forms are organized and instantiated, they they give rise to our ability to make measures um, and then make abstractions from those measures. Uh, and the abstractions are what we take to be information. So um, from a dialectical vantage point, there's like no justification for positing information that exists independent of the whole system of, um, you know, some, some context, some forms right. and nature and our relating to the forms in particular ways because they are um, derived abstractions basically. And so, yeah, that, that leads me back to the, to the issue of like always being careful to not conflate like that, the units that are right. in the world that compose the forms we're interacting right. with, with, with the actual processes themselves. Totally. And, and, and yeah. if we, so I'll, I'll jump off of that and say, okay, so when I do a holistic interpretation of that, sort of the mm -hmm. holistic interpretation of information as, you know, structured within and embedded within a system that can't be then differentiated out into some ontological claim of parts apart from the systemic organization. Okay. Uh, is that, so uh, when you look at the tree of knowledge, that's an upside down cone. So you got matter and then out of matter, you get life and out of life, you get mind and then out of mind, you get culture. Okay. 
Um, and then the, the vision logic of those is that these are actually a novel emergent dimensions of complexification. That's what I call them. I used to call them complexity. The proper term is actually complexification. And then the issue is what gives rise to the complexification uh, that affords the functional organization, autopoetic functional organization to use sort of a um, Valrera term or whatever, um, the for e cognitive science term. And, and my basic argument would be, well, what is functionally organizing that are the information processing and systems and communication networks between other information processors. That's a, my shorthand for that, okay? And essentially it's the organizing epistemic functioning, okay, of agents and their interrelation. And then the entire network is the entire dimension. So life then is, can be thought of as a kind of emergent bioinformation emergent information network computational complex adaptive system and its functional organization is pulled by the epistemic information processing systems of cells, meaning the ways in which those things are constituted, genes, okay, into proteins, into the metabolic processing with rule systems of a complex adaptive system. That structural functional organization is the epistemic organization, okay, of, of detecting forms, extracting information to make predictions, to pull free energy out of a system, to utilize it to maintain the functional integrity far away from entropy. Uh, and then you get a really pretty tight knit system of multiplicity of different definitions of information, but cohering together and argue really is the informational forms that give the complex self-organizing uh, adaptive structure to something like life. Yes, that's an excellent uh, line of, um, of detail there. That, that's very good. Um, this, I've heard so many beautiful renditions of that. And uh, it, yep, that, one, that one's mostly in agreement as far as I can tell with uh, my own position. So it's, um, I think it's, it's always important to be aware that there's like uh, there's this constitutive uh, factors and relationships and then this constraining and enabling factors at each yes. scale. And uh, yep. the, the asymmetric um, relationship between the two, uh, it's mm -hmm. like that always needs to be taken into account. Uh, yes. Uh, the top down, bottom up process. And, and it's, it's always important to be aware that like um, our methods of inquiry and uh, intervention it, 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 that allow us to learn about any given scale, um, they're, they're going to uh, involve certain interplays and uh, awareness of um, how the constraining and enabling factors and the constituting factors are uh, giving rise to whatever it is that we're, we're looking at. Like that, that basically forms our theories of, of every single scale. Uh, so the, uh, the implicate order is essentially the, um, uh, the processes that give rise to whatever it is that we are observing and that the uh -huh. explicate is what we're observing, the actual right. um, data or like mark on a screen in quantum uh -huh. mechanics. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, so the uh, I end up saying quite a bit less than most, um, I think. Uh, so there, there's a specific series of theories that I would be in agreement with all the way down to um, quantum field theory and, and uh -huh. you know, Bohmian mechanics specifically uh, and all the way up to consciousness. But um, in each case, uh, making ontological claims about what's going on, like I, I end up being very, um, uh, a bit, uh, almost agnostic, but not quite because uh -huh. what can be said, I think is that 
what's common throughout all of this is a uh, that we're we're always dealing with uh, a whole, right? That uh, and it has specified itself into a series of scales. So scales seems to be one thing, uh, one kind of category that uh, I don't think we can ever really get away from it. It's always going to play a role in, in how we think, how we engage with the world and, and the way that we um, specify our, our knowledge going forward. Yes. Uh, and so we have like one field or one system that is self-differentiated into a series of scales and different sciences basically are um, uh, characterized by the way that they become sensitive to enabling, constraining, and constituting uh, relationships, yep. right? And so that's pretty much um, the, the really briefly the philosophy of science, uh, like kind of grounded on a ontology, but the 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 whole, the, um, the conception of the system, the actual ontology, it ends up being... Um, uh, neutral monist because um, it doesn't seem possible that we can actually individuate it by any means other than to say that it's uh, a self-differentiating self-referential process yep. right uh, so so it's, it's a process ontology but um, it the the thing about this is that we can always keep filling in the details of what's going on uh, with regard for these different scales and how we relate to the different scales totally. but but we're in doing that, we're never actually getting at ontology itself besides um, the way that we establish uh, certain uh, forms or dynamics at one scale that is homologous to forms or dynamics at another. And in doing that, we're, we're gradually trying to generalize um, the most common forms or dynamics that, that we can in order to characterize the whole. But yep. uh, it's it, the, the anti-foundationalist um, commitment here basically says that although it's coming into greater clarity what mm -hmm. these uh, common features are, we're never actually getting at uh, the whole, right? We can't. Yep. So right. so it just ends up looking like a field of uh, symmetry breaking. And mm -hmm. um, and we might model that in various ways, but but again, those are just models. So, so there aren't really parts to this process. There's, there's our epistemic kind of um, conceptions that allow us to, to have better predictive measures. Um, but this leads to the, the issue of the uh, problem of consciousness. And, and here, um, it, it fits very well with neurophenomenology, right? Which is, um, again, avoiding the conception of reducing mind to matter or saying that everything is essentially in mind. Um, what we have instead are uh, continuous clarifications um, uh -huh. where we're identifying homologies uh, uh -huh. across neurological dynamics and, and experience, right? And, and what that's doing is it's allowing us to uh, be increasingly um, clarifying the kinds of questions that we ask and uh, with regard for neurological processes or functions uh -huh. that, uh, uh -huh. so what sorts of uh, structures and processes are we looking for? Um, uh -huh. At what scales? And and then we're connecting that to uh, the sorts of uh, experiences that people have. And and, and in this case, uh, the increasing um, uh, clarification and and uh, developing more and more nuances about phenomenology is invaluable because so, we have to actually be able to identify uh, more and more um, detailed kinds of experiences that we can then uh, use to uh, look for more and more detailed neurological correlates, right? right. And, and so that it posits this ongoing clarification again with 
homologies and with no um, uh, closing of that loop. So, so neurophenomenology is really um, the, the methodology of, of looking at that very point where mm. um, the, the ontology of uh, our experience meets the, the conception of ontology of nature itself. And um, the same kind of method is applied here as it is to all other scales. Uh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I'm thinking that there's a, well, uh, what I'd like to propose here as we come, you know, we've been going at it for a little bit more than an hour and a half. Um, and we're opening up now phenomenology. I want to talk to you about phenomenology and consciousness and all this other stuff. And I was wondering maybe if we can, you know, uh, look to some future episode and come back and talk about consciousness and phenomenology and uh, you talk in your dialectical holism. Yes, yes, that would be great. I would be willing to, willing to come back and share maybe in a, in a couple of months and we'll uh, pick up consciousness in particular as a, in relationship because we certainly sort of did philosophy. I di obviously dialogue about psychology, but not so much consciousness per se. And then we get into sort of natural science stratification, ontology, epistemology, metaphysics, and it'd be really cool to come back to phenomenology, consciousness. Uh, yes, I'll talk to you about how my framing on psyche and, and, and all of those kinds of issues. And I think that'd be a really rich dialogue. if you reveal. That would be good. We didn't get into um, altered states of consciousness and how they- We didn't, we never, you mentioned that. And then all of a sudden there were so many brilliant lines of, of, of conversation in the water. And that's why I'm, I'm sensing that there's a lot more richness for us to mine. And so I'd like to sure. do it on another episode. Great. Is That'd there anything that you'd like to, with that sort of then bracket, is there anything as you came in today or anything that you want to sort of reflect on as you, as we wind up today in terms of? Uh, well, there's a great deal of um, uh, possibility for discussion and development between uh, my approach to these issues and your own. Uh, I'm seeing uh, a lot more topics that uh, have yet to be uh, unpacked and I'm, I'm interested to see how that can go in the future. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, probably some arguments will, will unfold as we zoom in on these issues. <laughs> well, that's lovely. I mean, you know, we're, I, I sense that we climbed up, you know, the mountain or whatever, several mountains, but are seeing each other in relation uh, to different journeys, but then to have an enormous amount of overlap and then find uh, where the potential differences are. But it's been a it's been a heck of a ride here and I look forward to continuing. Great. Thank you. All right. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. James, I really appreciate it. And I really look forward to our next conversation. Thank right. you very much. Me too. All right. All right. Take care.